Welcome to the Always Better Than Yesterday podcast. I am your host, Ryan Hartley. This podcast is for heart-centered leaders just like you. I hope our time spent together helps you leave a heart print where those around you are left better than yesterday. These interview sessions are sponsored by our great friends at Elevate Online Marketing. On episode 198, I'm joined by Dr. John Demartini. He is a world-leading human behavior specialist, researcher, best-selling author, educator, and founder of the Demartini Method, a revolutionary tool in modern psychology. Dr. John has authored 40 books that have been translated into 39 different languages and presented his insights alongside some of the world's most influential people, including Sir Richard Branson and Deepak Chopra. Dr. Demartini's cutting-edge methods are the culmination of almost five decades of research across disciplines including physics, philosophy, theology, metaphysics, psychology, astronomy, mathematics, neurology, and physiology. He has synthesized these teachings and incorporated them into his work on human values. Dr. Demartini shares his life business, financial, relationship, and leadership empowerment strategies with people all over the globe, enabling them to transform their lives according to their highest values. We have an incredibly deep conversation. As you can tell, Dr. John is a well-educated fellow, and uh, I really enjoy time in his company. I really enjoy putting my curious questions to him. You could probably tell from the, the couple of moments of silence as I just take in the, the wisdom that he shares. Listen out for those moments of silence as the, as the penny drops for me in some of these conversations. I hope that you enjoy the questions that I ask. I hope that you enjoy Dr. John's responses. Please do head to his website and check out, check out more of his work, his, more of his content. And go and check out his latest book, The Seven Secret Treasures, The Transformational Blueprint for a Well-Lived Life. Here we go, episode 198 with Dr. John Demartini. Dr. John Demartini, welcome to the Always Better Than Yesterday podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's so good to see. You. I'm really excited to talk about your new book, The Seven Secret Treasures, The Transformational Blueprint of uh, for a Well-Lived Life. What's inspired the, um, why now? Why, why write a book about living a well-lived life? <laughs> well, I've been working on that for 50 years, not the book, <laughs> but uh, that pursuit. And I've written many books, all sort of around that area, that genre. But this particular book um, was just a, it's, it's not a massive compendium. It's an inspiring um, concise book on specific action steps that a human being can do to find the hidden order in their apparent chaos and to see life on the way, not in the way, and things to help empower each of the seven areas of life. So to develop their mind, to develop their career, to develop their wealth, their family, their social life, their physical health and well-being, and what inspires them. So so many people, particularly after COVID, uh, have had some derailments, some challenges along the way. And uh, so we thought that it would be wise to give some tips based on what we've been experiencing, interacting with people for the last few years, that we might assist them in becoming more poised and present and purposeful and prioritized. Mm, I love that. And um, I know that you 
don't go anywhere without talking about values. And um, last week I had parenting expert Dr. Gordon Newfeld on the show. And, and one of the really powerful things I took away from Dr. Gordon was this idea that as parents, it was to help our children find their values so that they can come to the world as a, as an expression of those values, because in absence of that, they would, um, they would see the world's values as their cost of acceptance. And I, and I found that really, really powerful to think about, you know, from a perspective of a parent. And I, and I know that you talk about how sometimes society and culture injects values into us you know many of people that are listening to my podcast they'd have explored the concept of values how might you guide someone through understanding whether that's their own value or maybe something that's been in injected into them well i've definitely addressed that issue for 45 years so <laughs> uh if you have to ask the question it's not yours <clears throat> mm. and if you hear yourself saying I've got to do this, I have to do this, I must do this, I ought to do this, I should do this, I'm supposed to do this, I need to do this, it's not theirs. There's mm. some sort of outer authority that they've subordinated to, that they've inculcated and injected, that they're attempting to pursue living up to mommies, daddies, preachers, teachers, mores, conventions, traditions of society, fitting into the herd, and having an internal conflict about what's really meaningful to them. But when they're doing something that's really meaningful to them, they're inspired, they're grateful, they love what they're doing, they're enthusiastic about it, they're certain about it because they develop skills in it because it's spontaneously where they want to learn most, and they're present, they're engaged. So if you're not seeing those six things and you're hearing a bunch of imperatives, you can be assured that it's some sort of an inculcated value from somebody they've subordinated to. Yeah. Or depend on. Hey, my friends, I hope you're enjoying the interview so far. Just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know that we are in the middle of our first cohort of Good Fathers, a six week group coaching program for dads. It is my heart to create a space for these good men to leave them better for those who call them dads. We're having some intentional, purposeful conversations that I can see the men in front of me are transforming in front of my eyes. They are having conversations that they've never had with anyone else and it is powerful and it is going to help them be much more loving and intentional fathers, intentional partners. And because I have such undying belief in the power of this group, I am bringing about a second cohort starting on Monday the 9th of January 2023. We're going to kick off with cohort two. If you are a dad that wants to be even better for those who call you dad, then head over to the website abty.co.uk forward slash goodfathers. The link is in the show notes. Have a look and it'd be my honour and privilege to have you come and join us and other good men from around the world as we journey in what it means to be a good father. Here we go. Back to the interview. That's really powerful. You know, I guess you're talking about an inner wisdom and inner genius, which is, you know, not to give too much away. Obviously, I encourage listeners to get the book, but, you know, your first treasure is all about um, understanding, you know, wisdom and the power of genius. And, and and I find it fascinating that you talk about the conventional labeling of, of ADD, um, you know, an attention deficit disorder. And, and, you know, what is the, what is your perspective on, on ADD? <laughs> Well, 
the first time I can I share a story, maybe that would be appropriate. Yeah, please. So I first got, I guess, fascinated by ADD when I was about 25. And even though I had heard about it, even though I'd seen many people with it, I probably had a bit of that myself. I think a lot of people do. I had a young boy brought in by his mother into my office. And she was the person who was coming for care, but he was running around and he was running back and forth in a seven and a half by 10 foot room in this little cubicle. And he was just running back and forth and hitting the walls and running back and forth, running back and forth, running back and forth. And it was a bit distracting. And the mother just was kind of ignoring it, but the child was just hyperactive. And then I asked the mother, uh, go to a moment where and when you perceive your son really stop, present, and engaged. And she says, I don't know. I can't think of it. I said, just stop, reflect. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. everybody's imposing the labels of hyperactivity on him. Yeah. It says when he's playing with his train set or doing something with trains. Okay. So I said, I stopped the boy. Well, I didn't stop him. I just said, so do you like, you like trains, huh? And he goes, yep, yep, yep. And he still runs. And I said, what's the longest train you've ever perceived in your life, seen in your life? And he stopped and he looks up and he thinks, he goes, you mean how many cars? Yeah, how many cars? Wow. Um, 250 cars? Yeah. And I went, great. And how many of those cars were tank cars, box cars, flatbed cars, et cetera, et cetera? I broke them down. He goes, Hmm. He's quiet, focused, not running. And, and then I said, when you look at his space in his room, is there something to do with trains? She goes, uh, he has train models. He has train um, sets sitting up. He's got train magazines. He's got train books. He's got train pictures all of his room. Trains is his thing. I said, so... When he's doing trains, he's engaged and he's focused. Now that I think about it, yeah, he can sit down and put a model train together, totally focused and complete that model. And he can read a book on it. I said, he has a concentrated value system. Mm. And he's trying to fit into a school where it's dispersed and none of them are being linked to the trains. Mm. And so he's disengaged. And so he's, he's, not, he's not in his executive area, he's in the amygdala. And um, I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go, you live in Pasadena, Texas. It's a kind of a, I call it the refinery area of town. <laughs> and I said, there's a train that goes there every day. I want you to take them over there and see and count how many train uh, cars there are. I want him to do the math on the ratios of all the cars for his study of math. <laughs> I want him to go and find out what country and what language on each of these cars to see how many languages and how many countries is involved mm. and see if he can study a bit of language on that and report that to his teacher. Yeah. I want to find out how many of those tank cars, what's the chemistry of those cars? Try to find out what is inside those cars. 
and where they're coming from. And I started to get him engaged. And he was like, cool, you writing that down, mom? And, and he's like totally engaged in that. And he literally was expecting his mom to take him over there so he could do this research. And he found mm -hmm. out how many engines and the ratios of them. So we ended up engaging him in mathematics because math was now important to him. Yeah. And sociology because now it was important to him. And so, and, and language because I wanted to study the different words that were all over that and make him study and read. So as long as he's focused on that, he had attention surplus order. Attention surplus is, is a part of the thalamus that selectively biases and filters out information out of the environment based on what you believe is most important to you that will help you fulfill it. Wow. And so he believed that that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to be involved in the train industry. Now, I have a friend that just sold the Southern Pacific Railroad. He's <laughs> <laughs> on the ship with me. And, uh, you know, so he was a child that was into trains and his parents were saying, you, you need to go and study over here. But he ended up mm -hmm. buying a train company and, <laughs> and becoming a billionaire. So, you know, for all we know that that kid may not be fitting into the average drone training system. He may be dedicated to be one of the great train specialists for all you know. So finding out what is intrinsically valuable to a child and then honoring that and seeing where he's focused or he's focused, she's focused. I guarantee every child has an area where that is. You just got to find it first. Yeah. Narrow down what the values are. And then you have to relate and link the other topics to that. My, I, I'm, I'm really great at that. I can take any kid with any focus and I can take any class and I can link it to them. And all of a sudden they're engaged in that class. They now want to learn that class because it's going to get them what they want. Mm. If they don't see how a class is going to help them fulfill what they want, they're not engaged. And they're only going to do short-term memory. And it's not going to go in. It's not going to stay. And it's not going to be applied. Mm. But the second they can see how it's going to fulfill what's important to them, now it goes in long-term memory. Now it's retained and now it's applied. Perception, decisions, and actions change. So in finding out what the, the child's value is, that's one of the things in the seven secret treasure, the book, is identifying what the child's values are. In South Africa, we had a township, Alexander Township. It's a low socioeconomic area, very, very impoverished. And lovely people, but you know, they may make 300, 400, 600 dollars a year. Mm -hmm. And so a dollar a day to two dollars a day. The schools were not exactly what you possibly are accustomed to in some more developed countries. I mean, some didn't have floors, some of them didn't have desks, some of them didn't have books. You know, kids would come to school if they fed them, that was it. Otherwise, they wouldn't come to school. Mm. And there was a 27% pass rate in the school. 27 out of every child that was taking the matric test passed. So it wasn't doing well. So we were asked to go in there. Uh, by the Board of Education. And I went in there and I took all the teachers and identified what their highest values were, most intrinsic value. I took the classes that they were teaching, some of which were not inspiring to them. Mm. And I did links for three and a half hours. I spent four hours with the teachers, three and a half hours in linking, 30 minutes determining their values, and three and a half hours linking each of the classes to their values so they would be more engaged. Because mm. a child's not going to want to listen to a teacher that's not inspired by teaching. Mm. 
you know, if your teaching class is boring and you're not involved in it, no kid's going to listen to it. Yeah. So we got them more engaged. Then we went to the class on the first day of school. We went to the class where the kids are. We found out what their values are. It took about 30 minutes. And then we linked all the classes to their values for three and a half hours. Mm. So four hours, four hours. Then I did one more class where I took the values of the students, all of their individual values. We all did it. We summarized them. And then the teacher had to link those values. How will those values, helping fulfill those values, help them fulfill their own? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then how is her values going to help them fulfill theirs? And we crisscrossed them and had this dialogue for four hours. Yeah. So a total of 12 hours. The engagement level went up. Mm. At the end of the year, the lady from the Board of Education, she says, Dr. DiMartini, I have something that's going to be something meaningful to you. I said, what's that? She said, we had 97% pass rate this year. Oh, come on. 97. I was expecting 40, 47. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. 97. Wow. The reason being is because the teachers got it. The students got it. And they realized that if they're waiting for the teachers to make them intelligent, it's not going to happen. They have to get engaged. And the more they can see how their classes are going to help them fulfill their values, they're going to school because they want to learn. Everybody wants to learn what's important to them. Yeah. It may be video games. It may be social memories. There, I was doing a reality TV show out in, in, in Universal Studios one time. And there was a guy there that thought he had no memory. Okay. Hmm. I, I had the responsibility of transforming 12 people's lives in 24 hours. One struck, 24 hours, 12 hours, 12 people, two hours each. And this guy believed he had no memory. He was a janitor. He had no memory, couldn't remember things. And the first question I asked him is, how long do you remember not having the ability to remember? <laughs> he said, he said, as long as I can remember. <laughs> and I said, I said, we narrowed it down and found out that he knew everything about his family, their birth dates, their background. He retained everything about that, but nobody ever asked him about that. They only asked him about stuff that wasn't important to him, and he just failed at learning and remembering and remembering. Once we found that, I showed him how to link other things to that. And he came out of the idea that he had no memory and was able to give himself permission to go back to college, go back to school and college because mm. he realized now i don't have a lack of memory i had a concentrated memory and nobody was relating to it none of the tag classes and all the labels on me nobody found what my priority was now that i know how to use that priority and link all the other things i want to learn to it i can now excel so values are crucial that's really powerful and, and you know the, those children become adults and those adults hopefully uh, enter into loving relationships and, and marriages and um the, <laughs> the thing that you say in your book which i find really interesting i've been married i've been with my wife uh, 20 years this year since we were 15 and uh, I, I did like the bit that you said it's comical that the universe puts sometimes opposites together in this sense of entanglement but you talk about if you don't start to understand each other's highest values, that it's careless. What do you mean by that? Okay. If you, the, the, in the, the way the brain is set up, when you're living in your highest values, your blood glucose and oxygen goes into your executive function, which is the prefrontal cortex. That means when you're living congruently with what you value most, your blood goes into the forebrain. 
if you don't and you're not feeling fulfilled and you're trying to live by lower values or somebody else's values, the blood goes down and goes into the amygdala. Mm. The amygdala wants to avoid pain, seek pleasure, avoid predators, seek prey, avoid shame, seek pride, avoid nightmares, seek fantasy. Mm. So as a result of it, we tend to think that we are better, we're right in our values. And we also have a fantasy that people are supposed to live in our values. So when we're not engaged and inspired, we are more vulnerable to that. And now if you take the other individual and they're not engaged and they're not inspired and they're now believing their values are right, you got to clash. And so right. two people are projecting their values onto each other. Mm. And they're trying to get the other person into their values, which is futile. Anybody who's been married knows if you try to get your spouse to be like you, you're just, you're just going to be wasting your time. Right. Lived experience yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So, so what happens is when you're careful, you're minimizing your values to somebody else and you're walking on eggshells. Anybody who's been infatuated with somebody in the underdog position automatically is careful because they don't want to lose the person. They don't want to upset them. So they're afraid to say anything negative that challenges them. And they're not going to say positive things and repress what they really think until eventually it explodes. Yeah. But if they go the other way and they're now self-righteous and they're arrogant and think they're right, they're careless. They care less about the individual than themselves and they project their values on them and expect them to live in their values. Mm. Neither which win or last are sustainable. And all the symptoms of either of those two things teach you to humble your pride, lift up your thing and level the playing field where you have caring, which keeps mm. the rings on the finger. Mm. Caring is you have equanimity within yourself, not pride or shame, which is an exaggeration, minimization of self. And equity between you and others, you're not putting them on a pedestal or pit, you're just putting them in your heart. And that's the one that's sustainable. And that's the one that people eventually have to learn, either through trial and error or through learning. Yeah, that's really powerful. You know, I, um, through a good friend, uh, Luke Burroughs, I asked a question about... Um, the purpose, true purpose of love being authenticity. And I really enjoyed your answer on, on his show. And, and, and I guess one of the things I read in your book, which talks about how um, it, being in relationship is the greatest kind of feedback mechanism for authenticity. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, all relationships that work, social partner, children or whatever, are all teaching us through the symptomatology that it generates, the dynamic, how to be authentic, how to be not exaggerate or minimize yourself. Because anytime you go up, you're going to get humbled. Anytime you're down, you're going to be lifted to get back in equilibrium. In fact, all the symptoms of our life are trying to get us there. Mm -hmm. But the intimate relationship, the spouse, for instance, because you've kind of got a social contract, either because of religion or politics or whatever, it's not as easy to just walk away from it. So you're, you're going to have to kind of, you have a little bit more, um, what do you say, responsibility and, and uh, accountability to get your, your, your crap together, <laughs> you know, to, to learn about yourself and learn how to deal with things. Mm -hmm. And so that's the, the value of that, that social contract is basically is, is assisting you on holding yourself accountable to learn how to be authentic. And to the degree that you do, the relationships start to flourish and that's that's where they are i mean i i just consulted with two people in monte carlo the other day uh who've been married for quite a number three decades mm -hmm. and um 
you know, the, the, you could, it's like a rocket. When you first take off, it has a lot of its energy going in its correction until it eventually finds its center and then it goes off. It's correcting systems. And so I think that's what most relationships are. You, you, you learn as you go and eventually you kind of settle down a path. And some people don't. Mm -hmm. Some people keep wanting to be right and they stay in their amygdala and they're not really objective, they're subjective and they're constantly imposing expectations. I, I worked with a lady just last night in Australia that was not respecting or understanding her husband's actions. He was in a, what they call a, a kind of a, a screwed squared position, if that makes any sense. <laughs> uh, I want you to go and build me a house and have me a house and have lots of money, but I want you to spend time with the kids. <laughs> so he's like, uh, if I'm with the kids, I'm not making money. If I'm making money, I'm not with the kids. I can try to do a balance, but if you want me to do this, I got to figure out how to be more effective here or more effective here or something. And, and so he was being alienated in his mind because he couldn't win. He didn't think he could win. And so I had to kind of crack the unrealistic expectation that people are going to get a pleasure without a pain, <laughs> an ease without a difficulty. There's always a pair of opposites coming. And sometimes people get addicted to the fantasy and project fantasies onto other people and expect them to be one-sided or expect them to live in their values or instead of honoring them enough to communicate what you want in terms of their values. And it's a selling process. Every relationship is a, is a selling process. Caring is selling. It's the same thing. We go, in, we go to seminars on how to sell for our customers, but we often don't go to seminars on how to sell to our spouses and to our husbands and wives. You know, we're not, we're not learning how to care enough to listen to what their values and needs are and articulate what we want in terms of what they want. So they win doing what we want. And that's some, that's a science. There's a science to it. Mm. That's powerful. You said the word addicted and you use that word in the context of happiness and that happiness being an, an addiction, uh, but one that leads to um, sadness as a as a um, as a response. What do you what do you think is the uh, the problem when it comes to a culture of happiness? Well, there's Aristotle talked about two forms of happiness. One is an, an immediate gratifying hedonistic pursuit of a pleasure without a pain, mm. which is a kind of a an infatuated dopamine rush and the other is pursuing something that's deeply meaningful and fulfilling he called eudaimonia and um, that one was something that was meaningful that means that fulfillment is coming from the embracing of both support and challenge the two sides not just one side yeah and i like to I, I use the analogy of a, a magnet because it's a simple analogy if I said, I want, I want you to have, I'm going to give you this magnet and um, I want you to give me the positive pull back without the negative pull. And, and if you do, I'll give you a billion dollars cash. How's that? <laughs> oh, wow. So you'll take the magnet, you chop it in half and then you'll go, okay, here's the positive pull of the magnet. And then I go and get the magnet and, and you think you gave me the positive half, but then you right. found out that I got a positive negative and a positive negative. So I said, well, you, you still got positive negatives. So we're measuring both positive negatives, just a half a magnet now. But it's still yeah. got positive negative. And he said, well, uh, okay, I need to cut it faster. So he cuts it faster. 
And he says, now here's the positive pole. Ah, still got a positive and negative. And so people can spend their lives pursuing a one-sided magnet with futility. Mm. And the frustration of keeping getting that one side becomes now the nightmare to balance the fantasy. And so they, they don't realize they can't get one without the other. I mean, think about it this way. If you're conscious of somebody's upsides and unconscious or downsides and you're infatuated with them, like many people are, like Michael Douglas was with Glenn Close originally, you know, before Fatal Attraction, uh, the movie. And so if all of a sudden uh, he's infatuated with her and he thinks, oh, there's going to be more positive and negatives, more advantage and disadvantage. Oh, I'm going to seek and impulsively go after that. Mm. But then a day, a week, a month, a year, five years later, you went, ooh, it's not what I thought. There's the other side. I was unconscious of it. And now I'm smacked by the other side. And then whenever you're infatuated, you fear its loss. Just like if you resent something, you fear its gain. So the more you try to polarize life and try to get a one-sided life or try to avoid a one-sided life, the more the other side is joined. So if you infatuate, you fear its loss. If you resent, you fear its gain. So you're living in fear as long as you're trying to not embrace both sides of life. But if you're in a marriage, and, and I went up to my, my marriage partner, I said, you know, honey, you're always positive, never negative, always kind, never cruel, always giving, never taking, always peace, never war, always considered, never inconsiderate. She goes, uh, if you say so, uh, I don't know about that. And if I say she's always mean and never nice and always cruel and never kind, the other way, she goes, you say so, I don't know about that. But I say, if I say to her, sometimes you're kind, sometimes you're cruel, sometimes you're nice, sometimes you're mean. When I support your values, you're nice to me like a pussycat. When you go against your values, you're mean as a tiger. Then she'll go, that's true. People automatically, intuitively have an internal psychostat, a thermostat to know that they have both sides. Mm. But people sometimes allow their amygdala to make them search for a one-sided relationship or a one-sided human being or one side within themselves. And these lead to moral hypocrisies. They're un unobtainable. The, the Buddha says the desire for that which is uh, the sort of desire for that which is unavailable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable <laughs> of the magnet of the source of suffering that's yes. our source of suffering <clears throat> which means that we are willing participants in our suffering absolutely and our <laughs> suffering is not our suffering really our sure. suffering is a feedback mechanism to try to let us know that we're pursuing something that's not highest in our values because mm -hmm. what's highest in our values, we embrace both sides of. Yeah. When when people pursue challenges that inspire them, they wake up their genius. Mm. When somebody, if somebody is trying to avoid challenges, they're going to keep attracting challenges they don't want, which is mm -hmm. distress. But when they're pursuing challenges that inspire them, it's eustress. It's wellness promoting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I love that concept. I saw one of your videos where you talked about um, how you went through the Oxford dictionary and you circled in the 4,600 words or, or, or states of being behaviors and it was at the point where you came to realize that um you know as you talk so eloquently about having um complementary opposite behaviors present at different times and you've come to this understanding that they are either displayed when values are supported or when values are challenged or not supported and, and i guess is is that then is that the purpose of, of emotions and values, do, do you believe? I think that if, if we look at where they originate and what there is, 
let, let's let's develop that because that's a really cool insight and that really people their light bulbs go on if they get it yeah if you are um, infatuated with somebody you're conscious of the upsides unconscious of the downsides yeah you wake the nucleus accumens and the amygdala up it creates an impulse it adds valency to the hippocampus which is a memory center and you now have a seeking of you know impulse towards that because it represents prey and food to you and you mm. don't want to be starving you want it to eat so you have a natural that's why you want to consume people that you are infatuated with mm. you want to call them honey bunny sweetie pie cupcakes sweetheart it's all sugary because you want to get your tongue on them <laughs> <You> want to <laughs> kiss them and stuff so when you're infatuated with them like that again you have the fear of loss mm. but whenever you do that and you put them on a pedestal and infatuate you tend to minimize yourself because you're now too humble to admit what you see in them inside you. And you think they have something you don't have, so you seek them. But that minimization of self is a disowned part of yourself, a dismembered part and a deflected part. And that creates a missingness, an emptiness. Because anytime you judge somebody, there's an emptiness. Mm. Now, if you go the other side and resent somebody and you're now conscious of the downsides, not conscious of the upsides, and now you're too proud to admit you have that. Mm. Now you disown that part and you're too proud. And so you look down on them and you think you're superior to them. And you go, I don't have those negative traits. And so now you disown those. Each disowned part, each deflected, dismembered part creates a void that leaves you feeling empty when you judge. Because there's a part of you intuitively know that whatever you're resenting is a part of you that you're ashamed of, that you're hiding and trying to dissociate from and holding on to pride and judging them because they're reminding you of it. And on the part on there that you admire, it's because you're too humble to admit it, but you have the same behavior, but you're too humble to admit it. And you like being around them because they're reminding you of what you admire in yourself. So the truth is that there is a reflective awareness and the individual that had pure reflective awareness has true intimacy. They don't have missing parts. And they're able to embrace somebody. So these voids drive the values in life towards fulfillment. Fulfilling means to see that nothing's missing. So we judge things, create an emptiness, create these voids that want to be filled, that then determine our navigation through life to try to fulfill them. The hierarchy of our voids is determining the hierarchy of our values, which is determining our perceptions, decisions, and actions to try to find fulfillment of the empty parts. Yeah, so powerful, isn't it? And, and you know, I, I've come to understand because the realization you had that is that they can be both present and, and that they never really go away. They're just less expressed in, in, in different ways. And came, I've come to the realization that um, it's a bit like David and Goliath, like the story of David and Goliath, I don't believe to be an underdog story. I believe it to be a greatest strength, greatest weakness. I believe Goliath's strength was his strength. I believe his weakness was his strength. And David was quick and nimble. And obviously it's a strategy. You know, I think, you know, David's strength counteracted Goliath's weakness. Anyway, that's to one side. It's given me the understanding that greatest strengths, greatest weakness, two sides of the same coin. And, yes. uh, and one of the things you say in your in in your talks um is that <laughs> when we love ourselves or, or not when we, when we want to improve ourselves we're, we're often saying actually I, I want to get rid of half of ourselves 
and and i think what you're saying is love is love is the synthesis of both of those sides you don't have to get rid of any part of yourself to love yourself right i, I ever I, when i teach the breakthrough experience which is one of my signature programs every week i do they um people are trying to get rid of some part of themselves and trying to get this other part that they admire in somebody else and it's just a futile thing and i try to explain to them that nothing's missing in you it's already there you're just on not on your form maybe i can share a story about that that's a really good story yeah go I, uh, I i had a guy that came to me and he he was a doctor and he said dr Martini, i'd like to hire you and consult with you to try to help me become successful i said great uh, the first question I asked him, okay, where are you successful? <laughs> and he said, no, I'm not successful. I want to be successful. And that's why I'm hiring you. I said, great. So where are you successful? Dr. Martina, I'm not sure I'm making myself clear. I'm not. I want to be. And I said, well, I'm not making myself clear. I'm asking you, where are you? I already know you are. You haven't realized where you are. So where are you successful? Where are you actually achieving it? something that's deeply meaningful that you are striving for and and all of a sudden he goes oh well i have a really amazing relationship with my wife mm. we've been together for we've known each other for 11 years been married 10 years and it's a bang on relationship i mean this we're like two peas in a pot i said fantastic so would you agree that you have what other would been considered quite an achievement there he said okay yes Great. Where's your next success, next achievement? He said, well, I got a 10-year-old son almost, and he's in baseball, and um, we're possibly going to win the pennant. I'm the coach, and we're possibly going to win the, the pennant this summer. I said, great. So you have that as a goal too, didn't you? He goes, I did, actually. Yes. And I love being with my son and being with the family and playing ball. What's the next one? He said, well, my mother-in-law lives with us and most people will get along with their mother-in-law, but we have this amazing relationship. She's just super. And I'm very inspired to have her. And she takes care of us and helps with the kids. And, and most people couldn't even imagine living with the mother-in-law, but we really have a family. I said, fantastic. What else? Well, we work in the yard and we're all oh, the whole family's in the yard and they all have these little gardens and stuff and flowers and stuff. And we we're probably going to get the yard of the month for the, for July this year. I said, great. And what else? Okay, well, I'm a lay minister on Wednesdays and sometimes on Sundays I do classes that are involved in, in uh, at the church. And I had a dream to be participating in the church as sort of an educational person. I said, okay. So can you see you have a series of successes? He goes, okay. I said, but the reason why you think you're not successful is because you're comparing yourself to somebody else you think has got more success. So who is that? So I think I know who it is. It's this guy up on top of the hill. He's got a 6,000 square foot home. He's got three car garage. He's got a bunch of cars, got a big practice, you know, and, and I'm, I don't have that. I said, okay, great. You know, the guy pretty well. Yep. And it says, how's his relationship with his wife? Mm. Well, it's interesting. You ask, uh, I think they've kind of separated like three times. They get back together again. It's a absolutely drama case. It goes back and forth. They're yelling at each other. It's a very volatile relationship. And I said, okay. And how's his relationship with his son? Uh, yeah, well, there's, they're having problems with him. He's not wanting to go to school and he's doing drugs and he's this and this. And what about the mother-in-law? Uh, yeah, they moved out of the country to get away from her. He literally moved completely out of the country, away from the, 
uh, his mother-in-law. No way they could do that. They, 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 he'd kill her. And I said, to, and what about uh, the yard? Uh, they got people to do that. I don't think they even noticed their yard. Sometimes they, they, they're not even paying attention to it. And what about church on Sundays they, or Wednesdays? Is he involved in any of those things? He goes, no, no, that's not his thing. He's focused on business. I said, first thing I want to share with you is that this man is not more successful than you. He is achieving according to what he values, which is more business and finance. And lower in his values is relationship and spirituality. You have a very high value on relationships, family, and spirituality, and a little less focus on business and finance. He said, that's true. And I said, so anytime you compare yourself with somebody else that's got a different set of values, that's like a cat expecting to climb, you know, to, to swim like a fish or a fish to try to climb a tree like a cat. You're going to have self-defeating. He goes, I've been doing that. He's but. Is there anything I can do to shift the values a bit to make it where I get a little bit more business and finance? I said, yeah, I can do that. But just know that if I take those that are lower values and I make them higher and I slide them in higher on the list, which I can do, I can show you how to do that. The other ones are going to come down a bit. So are you willing to give up some of the highlights you have now just a bit to have that new form? And he goes, hmm, uh, yes, but not too much. I said, then we'll rearrange it and I'll link the new values of business and finance up to your highest values now. But just know there's going to be a little bit more energy because you only have so many hours in a day. You're now going to put a little bit more energy into business and finance and maybe a little bit less in these other areas. And that's not a bad thing. That gentleman has benefits and drawbacks in his life. You're going to have benefits and drawbacks in your life, but there's going to be a shift. Because if you try to get the benefits of everybody, you're going to end up with life dysmorphia because if you compare your life to everybody else's highlights of their life you'll never appreciate your life yeah that's so powerful and um you know when we talk about the topic of love so often a human love is a conditional love you know it, and, and which is why i believe many go to spirituality to re receive a type of unconditional love that uh they've never received from a, from a human being. How much does that feature in, in a living a well-lived life? Well, I think you're going to have both. You know, it's kind of like love making. Sometimes you're going to be doing the animal passions and it's going to be one form. And other times you're going to have a love and intimacy, eye to eye, heart to heart, mm. mystical love kind of moment. And if you expect one without the other, you're probably going to be a little bit let down. Mm. Um, there's going to be moments when you have unconditional love in life. There's going to be moments when you have conditional love. A relationship to utilitarian. When I ask a woman in the breakthrough experience, <laughs> uh, how many women here are looking for a handsome man that if you had a child with, you would be interested in looking at that child? <laughs> Something that's attractive. And you go, yeah, of course. So he's got broad shoulders, nice tight bond buns, you know, nice chest, nice jaw, pretty eyes. You know, you're looking for a, a trophy guy. Great. And then you're looking for somebody who's intelligent. And then you're looking for somebody who's got some ambition. And you're looking for somebody who's got some resources. And you're looking for somebody that really wants you and is going to be with you. And you're looking for somebody that's got some social interaction and savvy. So if you introduce him, he's a good trophy. You want somebody that's obviously inspired. I said, so you're looking for a utilitarian uh, partner that's filling in needs that's helping you give you an advantage in the seven areas of your life. They go, yeah. And I said, so it's utilitarian. And if all of a sudden you married a guy that does all that, and all of a sudden he 
he gets a brain damage and he can't think now and he stops work and he doesn't make any money and um, he doesn't treat you well and he gets aggressive and he's not inspired and he sits at home and just eats and gains weight or whatever, you're going to have a hard time pretending that you're committed to that. You're going to be, you also had utilitarian reasons. So there's conditional components. And then there's also this, this part of us that have moments of true unconditional love where we just feel the presence and we're in a transcendental state. Mm. And that happens too. So you can increase the probability of that, but you're not going to have one completely without the other. You need, you need both along the journey. And uh, so whatever you know, you can transcend and know, but there's always a mystery and unknown out there that you'll probably judge and have conditions on until you then know that about people. And they're, all, they're constantly growing. So it's about a mixture of two. So if you have that realistic expectation and not a fantasy of one-sidedness or a one outcome, then you're probably going to do more stable in relationship than having a fantasy of one. It's always supposed to be one way. I think one of the flaws in human conditions is to learn to appreciate things once we've lost them. Unfortunately, uh, we've become a, a society that... Um, tends to regret or not, you know, learns to appreciate something that, you know, unfortunately on the other side of tragedy, grief or loss. And, and, and I think sometimes the greatest thing that we can do is learn to appreciate all that we have without having to lose it first. And, you know, I think you talk about gratitude being the thing that uh, connects us with the power of the heart. Yes. I just finished another book three days ago, two nice. and a half days ago, um, called The Resilient Mind. They'll be coming out in about probably six weeks or so. Mm -hmm. And uh, the resilient mind has a chapter on grief, and I've developed a grief process that's I've been doing since 1984. Started in 1976, but clinically since 1984, and it's a very powerful tool. I've used it in many, many countries. And um, we only grieve the loss of the parts of an individual that we were infatuated with, mm. and the parts that we resented in them, we don't grieve the loss of. When Soleimani, the Iranian um, general, was killed by Trump's team, America, because they saw him as a villain, celebrated. But in Iran, 5 million people came out and mourned because he was a hero in their country. And so they mourned the loss. In our country, he was a villain, so we celebrated the loss. So the things you dislike in people, you don't feel the, gr the grief of, the loss of. The parts you admire them, because you're in patch with them, you got dopamine. Now you have withdrawal symptoms from the dopamine, which we call grief. So that's only because you're unconscious of the downsides and you're only conscious of the upsides on those parts you're grieving. So there's a science on how to neutralize both of them. So there's not grief and relief. It's just love. Mm -hmm. And you feel the presence of them, even though they've passed on. And it's a question on who's now taking on all the behaviors and forms that they did because they're not lost. They're just in a form you're not honoring and recognizing. Mm. So if you go and find out, okay, so my wife used to show me affection this way. When she passed, who's now doing that? Well, my kids and my sister showed back up and my mom is now there for me and all the neighbors and some of the friends have come by and checked up on me and, and people I haven't talked to in years are calling. And if you stop and look, it's just morphing. And the master lives in a world of transformation, not the illusions of gain and loss. Most people in the, in the world are caught in, you know, gain and loss because they're attached. Like in the Buddhist said, to, the, the source of our suffering is our attachments, the things we infatuate mm. and resist. 
we have the capacity to transcend that and have a moment of unconditional love and feel the presence of someone. I've been doing that since 84, helping people with that. It's very simple. That's really powerful. You talk about you, you, you have a belief that there is a quantum field of love. Um, I know it's not a new concept. No, no, it's not a new topic. But for many, it will be. You know, it, it, quantum physics is, is not something that has um, it, um, come into the awareness of of, uh, of most people. So, what do you what do you believe um, when it comes to the quantum field of love? What because I think something sometimes is a bit esoteric, isn't it? Sometimes it's having to have that understanding beyond. The intellect or, or maybe not maybe you'll be able to, to, to share with us otherwise i don't know if it's it's um it has to be esoteric necessarily um brian cox uh talked about space and time being emergent functions from something mm -hmm. even deeper and more fundamental well space and time is where position and momentum is and where conditional states are mm. they're supposedly deterministic so that's not esoteric that's cutting edge science in particle mm -hmm. accelerators making us realize there's something more fundamental and is it the, the farther we go into the mysteries of of plank the pursuit of plank dimensions the more we uncover something that we didn't see before mm. but I, I i discovered something that i guess about 22 years ago uh studying i was writing a book on the mysteries of the living cell the origin of life and the possible how could life originate you know that was the topic mm -hmm. and i came across uh, in chemistry the component of chemistry or biochemistry of redox reactions uh, reduction of a molecule is a gain of electron and mm -hmm. oxidation is a loss of electron and molecules are flipping electrons and exchanging electrons constantly mm -hmm. becoming acids or bases or they're changing constantly but there's, there's a principle that there's never an oxidation without a reduction or reduction without an oxidation. They're simultaneous. Mm. And I thought, wait a minute now. The sympathetic nervous system, which is for fight or flight, when we perceive yeah. challenges, uh, causes oxidation during the day. And the parasympathetic uh, causes reduction mainly at night. And these are paired and they have, when they're in perfect sync, you have autonomic regulation and if they're out of sync you have autonomic dysregulation which is symptomatology and causes epigenetic indications for symptoms and disease mm. so these are actually meant to be simultaneously paired and because they're the ones that initiate these redox reactions so i thought hmm does that mean that support and challenge support for parasympathetic and challenge could they be redoxed in our life so i did some research on the brain. I've been studying the brain for 45, 44 years now. I taught neurology. And I found out that every time somebody challenges you, your mind, if it's something that you perceive has more drawbacks and benefits, the mind, if it doesn't see the benefits or doesn't see something to counterbalance the benefits in reality, will dissociate from that thing and create an artificial reality called an anti memory. Mm. And it will create content from previous experiences that counterbalance that in order to bring homeostasis to the brain and the brain is as a negative feedback loop trying to bring homeostasis at all times to stabilize the chemistry and it's like a buffer system 
And so we have what is called anti-memories for every memory. And if we are infatuated with something, we create a paranoia, the fear of loss of it. Mm-hmm. And if we're resentful of something, we create the escape, the fantasy of the escape. So there's never a nightmare without a fantasy or vice versa. Mm. there's never a phobia without a philia or a philia without a phobia there's never a something that would oxidize you and catabolize you without something anabolizing you and you're reducing you mm. so when i did that i started asking new questions to people who had been traumatized or ecstatized from some drug use or something mm-hmm. and i found out at that exact moment synchronously and i found a way in by asking a series of questions to get into the unconscious to access the simultaneity of the opposite. And the moment they find it and balance it, tears of gratitude come out. Even if Mm -hmm. they're in the middle of a trauma, if they see the exact opposite, their mind goes, I wasn't traumatized. I wasn't ecstasized. I actually had the torture and ecstasy simultaneous. So now I feel appreciation and love out of the synthesis of this. And so if I go in there and I take something, uh, a post-traumatic stress moment, and I take that and go through and take a sliver in the stream of consciousness moment by moment and go and take each sliver and show them these pairs of opposites with every one of those perceptions. Their mind is blown there and there's no trauma when they're done because they actually took the anti-memory and the memories and put them together, which is another way of Jung called what you were conscious of and what you were unconscious, the conscious and unconscious are joined and now you're fully conscious. When you're fully conscious, you're mindful, you're not having a void of judgment and you're Mm. in a state of love and unconditional love for a moment. It's just a moment, but now you realize that that thing you thought was terrible isn't terrible. It's just a magnificent moment of love. Mm. And that's the matrix. The matrix is a synthesis and synchronicity of all compromise opposites at any scale of being at any moment in our life. And we have access to that. I've been, I've been, I have whole classes where I train people, people that I've therapists that I train and people that learn the method just on how to do that for three days, just doing that for three days and scanning their life and realizing that there was nothing in their life, but moments of love. Mm. That's that, that dissolves all the baggage that people are storing in their subconscious mind. That's causing impulses and instincts and reacting before they even think. Yeah. There one of the one of the things that uh, I've I've added to my own personal mantra. I mean, because I used to be a guy, I used to try and work my face off, try and control my destiny to the point it put me on my knees. And I and I've had to learn this idea of surrender, this idea of, you know, things are beyond me. And uh, and I've and I've come to this understanding. Part of my mantra is to about leave space for the miracles. And then I read in your book that you say that actually miracles to those untrained are actually, you know, nature's law. How, how is miracle um, part of nature's law? Well, <clears throat> I've, I've not seen a miracle, but I have seen events that were once deciphered, had an understanding and explanation. But we tend to want to supernaturalize it instead of just mm. find out what actually occurred. But, um, you know, when things happen in our life, we sometimes pursue with our amygdala a pleasure without a pain without even realizing it, a fantasy. Mm. And then we get smacked by the other side. This, this goes back to the, you know, is there determination, indetermination, is it free will, predestination, necessity, mm. or contingency? It's the same philosophical question. But there's a solution to it. There's two types of free wills. There's the moral hypocrisy free will where 
you have been in, in an injected value from some preacher or teacher or politician or whatever, this is good and bad, and you're making a decision. I'm going to avoid that and seek that because there's more advantage to that. And then when you actually make that decision, you find out, oh, there's a bunch of snags there I didn't anticipate. And then you go, well, maybe my free will has got a little predestination because the opposite was there with it. And maybe I didn't have so much of free will. And you sit there with an uncertainty principle because you're sitting in this polarized state. And then there's a state that is true free will. And that is when you are not too humble to admit what you see in others inside you. You don't have them on a pedestal. You don't have them on a pedestal. And you're not too proud to admit what you see in them is inside you. You don't have them in the pit. You have it perfectly equilibrated where there's no desire to change them relative to you, mm. no desire to change you relative to them. There's no desire to change anything. Mm. You love it as it is. And now what is, is what your will intends. And you're not caught with infatuations or resentments, which preoccupate space and time in your mind and run you and, and put you in bondage. So there's no bondage. There's just a freedom to embrace in a poised present state what is. Om Tat Sat, as the Indian epic said. And now all of a sudden you're just present. And you realize that if there was a intelligence in the universe, a divine intelligence and the theological systems, you realize that what is, is that, and now you have no desire to change what is, mm. and you realize that you're now present, and now you are freed in your will, but it happens to match what seemed to be predestined, and there's no paradox. Mm. So in that state, there's no paradox in the philosophy. There's only a paradox as long as you're in your amygdala, and you're trying to put an evaluation of what's right and wrong and good and bad, and the moral hypocrisies that people trap in. But once you transcend that, and see that there's a pair of, there's, you know, a trait that you admired. People think when they get this guy that's intelligent or something, oh, I'm going to get, oh, that's what I want. And then you find out that they also have a peccadillo called, they'll argue with you, that they think they're right, they know it all. And then you go, oh, this trait that I admired now becomes my nightmare. And this trait that I despise, that they're working all the time, gave me a nice house, paid for my kids' schooling, mm. you know, got me nice clothes. So the things you dislike has upside. The thing you like, that's why Milton says, John Milton says that, that you, you, can, you can make a heaven out of a hell or a hell out of a heaven. So the idea of a polarized idea instead of a synthesized idea is what traps people in the moral paradox and the paradox of free will and predestination. And it doesn't actually occur. It just appears to occur in a mind that's not fully awakened. I could... Uh... I could ask you questions all day, good sir, but I want to be super respectful of your time. I have a word here at Always Better Than Yesterday, and it's called heart print. A bit like fingerprint, but heart print. And I, and I believe that when we love people, when we serve people, when we lead people well, we'll leave a heart print where people are left better in some way. And this may be a really unfair and, and difficult question to ask you, given the, uh, the sheer amount of goodness that you've put into the world, you know, your creation um but what what do you think your heart print is well i've had a dream to help people discover the magnificence of the universe hmm. and the magnificence of themselves inseparable from that i i tell people that no matter what you've done or not done you're worthy of love and then no matter what you've done or not done, you're participating in it. 
And that's why I think I developed that methodology to help people see that. But you know, it's interesting. There's a, the way the brain is set up, when you do live by your highest value and you're living congruent and authentic to what's really most important and meaningful to you, the blood glucose and oxygen goes into the forebrain, the executive center. Now that forebrain uses glutamate, which is a facilitator and a inhibitor, which is GABA, to calm down the amygdala's impulses and instincts, which are distractions. And it sends a signal over to the suprachiasmic nucleus to synchronize all the biorhythms of the body, which goes to the epithalamus back up to the, to the pineal. And it also then goes over to the autonomic centers in the midbrain. And uh, it automatically causes a regulation of them, which then goes down to the heart, to the intracardiac network of the heart and synchronizes a sinoatrial node and the hormones are coming out there and synchronize the heart. And the moment those are perfectly synchronized, we feel an open heart. Mm -hmm. So an open heart is a confirmation of living authentically to let us know we're not distracted by extrinsic misunderstandings of the magnificent universe. And we're having a moment of seeing the magnificence and we're rewarded with a feeling of fulfillment and we're being authentic. So I do believe that the heart print is real. And it's unique to each individual because they have a hierarchy of values which are like a fingerprint. And if they fulfill what's truly authentic to them, their heart lets them know that. And the physiology of the heart maximizes its pumping of blood for the sake of the, you know, the heart, the right, right heart is, is pumping blood up into the lung to get the oxidation. The left one is going down into the body for reduction. So it's trying to bring a perfect balance into the physiology between the heaven force and the earth force, day and night, the phototropic and the gravitropic components of our nature, put it all back in a balance. So we, we really get rewarded by realizing the magnificence. And I tell my students, I said, uh, see if you can come up with a more magnificent structure than the human brain and body <laughs> hmm. for getting things done. It's pretty amazing well structure. I have a heart on fire right now and a tear of gratitude. That was a, a beautiful, beautiful answer. Thank you. It's definitely one of my favorite answers. It's, it is the, that is my favorite response to that question. Good, sir. Thank you so much. That's um, super, super powerful. Um, Dr. John, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for so much uh, goodness that you've put into the world. Thank you for the gracious uh, time that you've spent here with us. And, and I'd be honored if you'd leave us with a final thought from your good self. Yeah, well, uh, whoever's listening, <laughs> uh, the magnificence of who you are is far greater than any fantasies you may impose on yourself through the comparison of yourself to other people. Don't put people on pedestals. Don't put them in pits. Just put them in your heart. There's nothing you'll see in them that you don't have in you if you look with reflective awareness. And that way, when you see somebody you admire, look inside because you have the capacity to stand on their shoulders and do something even greater. And give yourself permission to shine, not shrink. Radiate, not gravitate. Love, not judge. Thank you. Hey, my friends, thank you for making it to the end. I hope that our time spent together today has left you a little bit better than before you push play. I'd really appreciate if you just took a moment to leave a review to allow me to meet more people where they are and hopefully leave them a little bit better too. 
If you're curious to know how I, through Always Better Than Yesterday, can serve you, your team, your organisation, then head to alwaysbetterthanyesterday.com to connect. And while you're there, let me know one or two things that you're going to do as a result of listening to this conversation. I absolutely love hearing your thoughts, your reflections, and the things that this spark in your own heart and mind. If you want more insights from my heart and mind, I do send out short episodes on a Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday. And again, I hope that they serve you well. I appreciate you listening. I'm Ryan Hartley, host of the Always Better Than Yesterday podcast, a podcast for heart-centered leaders just like you. Keep leading, my friends. Always love.